Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Hello, Behind the Knife listeners. Thanks again for tuning in. This is Hillary Simon from the University of Louisville, and I'm joined by my team members, Drs. Glandiak, Bolshinsky, and Kabalukas. Hello. Hello. Hi. This episode is unique as it combines the world of pelvic surgeons and reconstructive surgeons. Today, we'll be discussing articles from the diseases of the colon and rectum focused on management of perineal wounds following pelvic surgery and postoperative complications. Yeah, it's really important for colorectal surgeons to have a really good understanding of perineal wound options, including primary closure as well as mycotaneous flaps. Without having really good knowledge of flap options, you really don't know when to consult a plastic surgeon. It's also important to have a baseline understanding of how to prevent non-healing wounds and what to do when you what to do when you end up with a non-healing perineal wound in one of your patients. Let's dive into our first article. So the first one we're going to discuss is an article out of Diseases and Colon Rectum in 2022 by Jim Tiernan out of University St. James University Hospital in Leeds. He did a comparison. It was a retrospective study, but it was a retrospective comparison of perineal myocutaneous flaps after APR for basically anorectal pathology, but they did focus quite heavily on cancer pathology and the other added complications that can come from a radiated pelvis. So they basically found 135 patients who underwent proctectomy or an APR with flap reconstruction from 2007 to 2018. And they really compared their primary endpoint was flap complication rate. And then their secondary outcomes were perineal hernia rate, donor site complications, 90-day readmissions, and some other things. And what they did was compared three different groups, patients undergoing a VRAM or a uh, vertical rectus abdominis myocutaneous flap as what VRAM stands for. They compared that group to a group of patients that got gluteus flaps, and then the third group of patients were those that got gracilis flaps. So even though this article was retrospective, it was one of, there's not a lot of literature out there trying to compare all these flaps had to add a lot of the previous literature that I looked back, looked at a lot of rates of primary closure versus flap closure, and not really getting bogged down into which flap is better. As you know, these perineal wounds have a very high percentage of breaking down, somewhere between 33 to 60% in different studies. And most of the systematic meta-analyses that were out there prior to this to this paper all sort of come down in favor of a flap as far as having less perineal wound dehiscence rate or less perineal wound complications that way. So these results show that the demographic variables were similar, and there's actually no statistically significant difference in flap complications between VRAM and gluteal, even after controlling for a myriad of different factors. They did not have enough numbers or power to compare gracilis in versus VRAM and gluteus. I think that's only about, I think there's 15 gracilis flap reconstructions out of these 135. Some of the trends of their outcomes, they did trend that the gracilis group was starting to have possibly higher dehiscence rates or higher complications. But again, it wasn't powered to come out with a statistically significant difference. So their overall outcome basically was that, you know, specifically between VRAM and gluteal flaps, which they compared primarily head to head in a myriad of different ways, 
there were no statistically significant differences. And this was something that was of interest because it was more patients or more surgeons are moving toward a minimally invasive approach. Then it kind of bears the question is, you know, a lot of patient, a lot of surgeons are like, well, I'm going to do something minimally invasive. The VRAM is the best way to go. They are kind of recommending that maybe even a gluteus flap is still going to be a good option. I think that this, this particular paper did not focus on quality of life or morbidity that may arise depending on which type of flap that you might do. But it is interesting as far as moving forward for flap reconstructions, given the different ways that we're starting to approach these cancers surgically from the abdominal standpoint. So I guess when reviewing the literature on the topic, I'd like to first step back and think about the motivations of using a flap and also the different pathophysiology that may necessitate using a flap. And in broad terms, the way I think about it is the following indications. So is the defect too large to be closed primarily due to a multivisceral resection such as a pelvic exenteration or because of an advanced SCC that requires a large skin margin excision? Is it a chronic sepsis problem, which we sometimes see in, in bad Crohn's disease? Or is it because of poor tissue quality, such as because of a history of pelvic radiation? And so in my mind, the prevention of a perineal hernia, which is sometimes mentioned in articles, is not an indication for a flap, as the flap does not actually prevent herniation. And the second thing, of course, and the most practical factor in analysis of any articles when it comes to choice of flap is the availability of the skill set in the institution. So personally, I am reliant on my plastic surgery colleagues to harvest flaps. And so I'm also bound to their opinions and their skill sets in terms of what they think is the best outcome they can achieve. Now, at DCR, in the Journal Club, we were fortunate to have the Leeds group And one of the authors in the articles that we have is from the Leeds group. And they mentioned that they actually harvest their own flaps. And of course, whilst this is uncommon, that would bias or maybe sway one unit compared to others to a particular choice. Now, I guess, Dr. Galandiak, what are your views on this? Well, I don't harvest my own flaps, first of all. So we have the luxury of having some really gifted plastic surgeons, but... I think from my perspective, use of flaps is whenever there's a really big dead space in the lower pelvis, which isn't peritonealized. And then you wind up with accumulation of a lot of fluid that is not going to be absorbed and potentially become infected. And then also if you have a chronically radiated space that, that's just not going to heal. The thing where I see the RAM flap being incredibly superior is when you're doing a posterior vaginal excision because you can so nicely reconstruct that as well as have adequate to skin for reconstructing the perineal wound as well. And we have some really gifted plastic surgeons here who can do could get such a large skin harvest for doing that with minimal wound morbidity. And I think it's just from working with them that I've been so biased for that and the amount of tissue and the bulk that they can get. Uh, conversely, I've been uh, impressed by the uh, local morbidity that patients have from gracilis wounds in the leg. Even though it's a uh, local flap, 
uh, patients over years, I, I, I think, have a lot of discomfort from the harvest sites. So that's why I'm not that keen on that flap. I think luteal flaps are much nicer in terms of patient morbidity. And that's why I've basically don't favor the gracilis flaps that much. And I think they, they don't provide half as much skin or muscle bulk as the gluteal flaps do. I think moving forward in the future, as everybody now seems to wanting to be adopting robotic surgery, our plastic surgeons are interested in doing courses where they can do robotic VRAM harvest. This is where you don't need, if you're not doing a posterior vaginal reconstruction or you feel like the skin isn't really your tipping point, it's you know, covering in that huge space and the lower pelvis. I'll be very interested and look forward to the next you know, five to 10 years as more people, I think, will start to adopt robotic VRAM harvesting as well. Are they harvesting VRAMs robotically at your center, Dr. Bolshinsky? Uh, that that's a very interesting sort of idea, but I'm a big proponent of first doing no harm, uh, and I think uh, I will remain sort of uh, being quite uh, keen on flapping selectively. And I think if you sl- flap selectively, the chances of having a large cohort of patients to refine a robotic harvest skill w- would be challenging. Now, as well as this, of course, when we look at evidence, I think it will be unlikely for us to have a randomized controlled trial to provide confidence about a particular flap or pathway. And so, in general, I think I will maintain sort of a first principle approach to decision making. So, the other thing with that, I always think about these patients that come in a package. They they need a flap, but they most likely also will have a permanent stoma. And they have a lifelong stoma. And so that comes with a risk of parastomal herniation and also the need to recite the stoma at some point. And so I actually try to avoid using the abdominal wall at all costs from that perspective. And so I guess my preference would be a gluteal type of flap, which I think marries the sort of reduced morbidity compared to gracilis to Dr. Gladiak's point but also protects the abdominal wall. Now, interestingly, I think in the in Australia, the unit with the biggest sort of experience with these large resections is Professor Solomon's unit in Sydney. And there was a recent article in DCR by his team called Complications and Impact of Quality of Life of Vertical Rectus Abdominis Mycutaneous Flaps for Reconstruction in Pelvic Exenterations. And they talk about a selective approach to perineal defects, and specifically they focus on a four-pronged clinical risk sort of algorithm where they choose abdominal perineal resection, pelvic radiation, the need of total exenteration, and sacrectomy as factors that would uh, motivate them to flap. Dr. Polshinsky brought up a a very important point that it's, you know, imperative to pick folks and individualize those who get flaps. What are some other factors that everyone considers for flap versus no flap? For me, if somebody's had a, a low radiating pelvis, and I worry a lot about radiating and the human status of vascular, I'll 
a chemo radiation. I think Phyllis up all this black people that's great and she focuses just on the area and you know it's boots never heal primarily plus the situation I just mentioned where if you're doing a post-burial vaginal decision and in vulnerable establishment those which just a natural flat and and Dr. Wolchinsky, when we were talking kind of offline a little bit ago, made several good points about patients when it's Crohn's disease. Yes. Well, uh, there's an article that I like quoting by Figgin Church from DCR in 2009. I can't recall the name of the article, but we'll attach it. But they describe the bad players in Crohn's disease and they describe it as perineal Crohn's disease. So a bluish discoloration of the perineum, painless fissures, multiple fistulas and abscesses, uh, elephant tags. And particularly when they biopsy the perineal skin, they demonstrate that there is granulomas. And so Crohn's manifestation within the skin. And certainly those patients would have a high risk, not only of requiring proctectomy, but wound breakdown. I'm not convinced that a flap would prevent that risk, but certainly these are difficult cases. The other thing I wanted to mention, I, I have a, um, a mentor who's passed away, Jack Mackey, and he used to have a sort of a famous quote saying, thinking is dangerous, which is a counterintuitive thing in surgery. But I think to his point, it's very important to plan ahead of time. A flap is not something that can be decided on the day particularly if another team is required to harvest it. And so these, these are complex cases that require a lot of thinking before you're in the OR rather than on the day. Yep. The other thing that also, you know, in my mind too, I want to obviously people that get cancer don't necessarily always have the most well-controlled A1C. And I know that people that are diabetic, in my mind, kind of raise the wound healing, but I think it's as far as the thinking we watch, you know, these donor sites for these flaps are also at a higher risk for breakdown. So just because I don't want my perineal wound breakdown doesn't mean that their gluteal, you know, flap wound or their VRAM also isn't going to break down. And so I, it's kind of, I wouldn't flap somebody just because they have diabetes because they're going to have just as large, if not larger, of a defect than somewhere else. But it's certainly another complicated factor. Yeah, and the same for GoPro obesity as well. Dr. Gilandiak mentioned earlier about the fluid buildup in the pelvis. This is slightly off topic, but I found that I religiously used to put in a pelvic drain and measure how much fluid that comes out in the hope that that prevents the wound breakdown. And then once I scanned the patient a few days after and found that the drain migrated above the liver. And so I was still sort of diligently measuring the output, which clearly was meaningless. And so... I'd be interested from Dr. Galandiak if there's any particular technique, particularly if it's primary closure in terms of closing widely versus closing tightly, anything that would reduce the wound breakdown technically. I mean, I am extremely old-fashioned, so I love a mental flaps. Uh, I know there have been a lot of studies that show they are not good or are equivalent, but I really think the omentum is a wonderful absorptive organ that when put down there really helps in healing of, of the perineal wounds. So uh, no matter how you close it, I, I think it really helps. I think this is a good segue to talking about how we can prevent 
perineal wounds from happening and how we manage them by moving on to our next article of discussion. More recently, there has been increasing use of negative pressure vacuum-assisted closure therapy, or wound vac therapy for short. For our second article of discussion today, we'll review and discuss an article titled Closed Incisional Negative Pressure Therapy Reduces Perineal Wound Complications After Abdominal Perineal Resection. This article discusses closed incisional wound vac therapy, or better known as the brand name Provena, and how it prevents future wound complications. This is a retrospective study from a single center and single surgeon aimed to assess the impact of closed incisional wound back pressure therapy on perineal wound healing in patients who underwent APR between 2012 and 2020. There was a total of 45 patients, 31 were managed with the wound back, the incisional wound back. The study found that the incisional wound back was associated with lower overall incidence of wounds of the perineum, 32%, compared to 70% of wounds that weren't managed with uh, an incisional wound back, and it was associated with less severity of wound complication if one did happen to occur. In the univariate analysis, interestingly, they found IBD and perioperative steroid use was significantly associated with perineal complications, so they controlled for those factors in their regression analysis. In this analysis, they found that using an incisional wound back decreased the odds of wound complications by 85%. And the study concluded that this is a beneficial option for perineal wound management after APR, which could potentially reduce further complications and it might be cost-effective, but further trials are needed to, you know, make a better conclusion. Well, I think there are many people would take issue with this article simply because the groups of patients were extremely small and a lot of problems with this also are that this product is extremely expensive. So I, I don't know if they really have proved their point. On the other hand, I think the negative suction dressings really are very useful if you are in that fortunate situation where you do have a patient who you've closed primarily and then has an open wound. So are you saying everyone here is it going to use an incisional wound back on their primary closed perineal wounds after right. reading this? It's <laughs> right. hard to put on a female. Yes. Right. And that's what There's they mentioned in the article as well. With the application. Yeah. Even a male, it's not, it's, they're not easy to change. Yeah. There's an article in DCR, I think from this year or last year, called the Effect of Incisional Negative Pressure Wound Therapy on Surgical Site Infections and High-Risk Reoperative Colorectal Surgery Cases. This is for abdominal incisions. I think David Lisko was the main author on this, and they demonstrated no difference in wound infections. Obviously, it's a different site. From my experience, the advantages of it it, is that it protects the wound from the helpful fingers of sort of ward staff as well as the patients and so maybe that is an advantage and it does seem to make the wound appear more mature after a week if you take it off and so I think the wounds that heal well probably heal faster but I'm skeptical about its wound protection capabilities personally. I mean it may I think you just need a lot larger patient numbers to show this and the wound infection rates are not that high like i said the wounds to hiss 
they don't necessarily become infected. So, I mean, it's just very hard to have make a good study to show an advantage here. I also think it's probably a better application for a primarily closed wound than a flap that, if anything, is going to hide it in his hands yeah. and nobody's going to take that dressing down and then it's going to be not necessarily too late. But the last thing we want to do is deter people from checking flap viability and margins and breakdown early on in the post-operative period. So I think we all can agree more work is needed in this area. <laughs> yeah, I think this is kind of an important segue and we have an opportunity to talk a little bit about other complications that we can hope to avoid after pelvic surgery, including fistulas that or those persistent sinuses, you know, the very rare perineal herniation. And so I'm just going to open the floor to everybody to if you want to talk a little bit or give your opinion on the best way to manage some of those persistent sinuses that can happen after perineal surgery. Let's do it as an outpatient because I think you, Dr. Glenn, you've taught me some pretty cool tricks brought in the clinic. They don't have to be admitted. They don't have to go to the operating room. But every time I've come to you early on and been like, oh my gosh, this is happening. I think you, you've taught me some, what are your, what's your algorithm for dealing with the APR wound in the clinic? Well, unfortunately, I just, just seeing them frequently, I think if you could see the patients before fibrotic sinus sets in while it's still soft, able to heal, that's the trick. But unfortunately, a lot of patients have problems traveling and that's, is sometimes difficult, but uh, I'm a big uh, friend of silver nitrate, which if you anesthetize the patient locally with xylocaine, topical xylocaine jelly, that a lot of times just chemical cauterizing the tracts regularly will prevent, help things heal fairly well. And I think I, I had a patient, I mm. think too, was clearly, you know, some purulent discharge from the sinus tract and that I'm snaking a little red rubber in there to help mm -hmm. it drain better instead of skin closing and it re-accumulating. Mm -hmm. That's yeah, pretty helpful. Mm -hmm. Dr. Wolshinsky, do you have any other things you'd like to do in clinic? I guess any wound which can be sorcerized, I don't tend to worry about. So I worry about, and you've kind of just touched upon it, is the sort of the long neck. And those I really struggle with. I, I, I do try to see the patients regularly. But, but I do worry about those deep wounds and potentially those are the ones that I might take to, to the OR to, to debride. In terms of packing, which I do, I, I just use normal saline soaked gauze. I don't believe that any of the products, whilst they have great names, don't necessarily improve the outcomes. But it's important to have regular dressings and also potentially use SIDS baths to ensure the wound is as clean as possible. Potentially use a wound vac, black sponge, or white plus yeah. black sponge wound vac therapy. Yeah, one of the most difficult type of uh, sinuses to use is the what I call a dumbbell-shaped sinus, where there's a very narrow tract on the outside, and it connects to sort of a, like a spherical thing on the inside toward the pelvis, and those are very difficult. So what I'll frequently do is if there's a non-healing wound, I'll actually do a, a sinogram on them to detect if that's present. And that, that is a much more difficult scenario because it, those just have very difficult time healing. So the scenario I describe, for example, is an indication for a delayed flap because that dumbbell-shaped sinus that will not heal and even attempts to cure it, at, cure it out 
just don't work. So a delayed flap for that scenario is very useful. And with that, let's wrap this day up with our five quick hits. Number one, importance of preoperative discussion of high rate of postoperative wound breakdown. Be aware of your institutional resources in terms of plastic surgery availability and wound care nursing support. Remember that a lot of the public's published studies in this field are underpowered and you have to really critically appraise them. And remember that not one size fits all. Perineal closure approach should be individualized based on patient risk factors. Not everybody needs a flap and not every flap is going to work the same on every patient. And general surgeons should have a fundamental knowledge of perineal wound management. Thank you all for your attention today. And until next time, dominate the day. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.